Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing um, the wonderful work that's going on in, in Africa. Um, I just, man, every time our, f our friends come, I'm just moved and uh, so encouraged by um, the good work of, of God. Uh, so thank the Lord for that. Um, if you want to get involved, um, family will be outside. Please do pick up one of their, their prayer magnets. Um, Africa is not too different from here. Uh, they have two seasons, the rainy season and dry season. Here in Florida, we've got two seasons, hot season and hotter season. <laughs> and so uh, if you live in Florida, then you are ready to go and join them in the work of God. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we are committed to, to walking with you guys and praying as, as best as we can. So, yeah, thanks for encouraging us to live out our call. Um, hey, can you take a minute just to look to someone next to you and say, hello, it's great to see you. Um, God bless you. Uh, if you're online, uh, welcome. Um, can put a note in the comment box just saying that you're here so that we could uh, see you and recognize you. This week, um, our kids uh, stumbled across a TV show called Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Uh, it's a really interesting show. Some of you seem like you, you, you watch it pretty regularly. Um, but they, they stumbled across it when they, they turned on the TV and, and it was there. It's basically a show about this chef named Gordon Ramsay. And he goes into these restaurants whose kitchens are veritable nightmares pretty much. There's something, uh, all kinds of stuff wrong with it. And he goes and he like bashes it and tears it apart. But um, as <clears throat> our kids were watching it, like Elise, our, our youngest one, she's little and she's watching it. And uh, he uses a lot of like bad language in it, a lot of inappropriate language. And so she's like, why, why does he keep beeping when he's talking? And why is there like a rectangle over his mouth that makes his mouth blurry? And they're just explaining, hey, this is, uh, you know, they, they didn't script this. It's, it, it's, it's called reality TV. And so he says what he wants to say. And, and they're just making sure that we don't hear it. Uh, but our, our family has kind of grown to love reality TV. Olivia and Manny, one of their favorite things to do is um, to watch a show called Top Chef. Uh, they love watching Top Chef. Uh, we used to watch Biggest Loser when we were, uh, when that show was on. It's basically a weight loss show. Uh, but the, the longer we, uh, we're kind of interacting with reality TV as a culture, the more we begin to realize, you know what, there's some things that are not quite so real about reality TV, right? It's like um, you see Gordon Ramsay as he's like berating these chefs or these head of the house people, head of the restaurant people, and he's like screaming at them. And they're just sitting there like, yeah, my food is terrible. Yeah, you're right. It's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. But they don't do anything. I'm like, dude, if that was like a real self-respecting chef, like they'd like start going to blows together, wouldn't they? And, and I was reading like, why don't people get so upset at Gordon Ramsay? And you find out that there are a bunch of bodyguards <laughs> that are around the set, uh, around the restaurant. So if Gordon Ramsay is like yelling at them and stuff like that, uh, they know that if they do something to him, that they're going to get in big trouble. And so um, you realize that there's a lot more to reality TV uh, than what we see on TV. Uh, it was uh, reading this thing about Survivor where one of the contestants said, you know what, a lot of this is so staged and so scripted. Uh, sometimes when the camera's off, the producers will give us food <laughs> and they'll give us fire in order that we can survive so that we can make, make it to the next round because they want us to stay in the game. On Biggest Loser, when they weigh um, at the beginning of the week and they weigh at the end of the week and, oh my gosh, this guy lost 80 pounds in one week. What we don't know is that what they show to be the beginning of the week weigh-in actually happened like a month and a half before. And so they splice all these things together to create a better show. What we think is reality it's not always the deeper reality. There's a lot more than meets the eye when it comes to reality TV. And the same is true of life as well. Whether we're living in Africa and doing work there, 
or we're living here in America, or you're living as uh, a church in Asia Minor in about 2,000 years ago, seeking to bring the gospel in the face of persecution, there's a lot more than what we see with our eyes. The book of Revelation was written in order to pull back the veil. And, and, and in fact, the word revelation, the, the word we get, uh, the, the name of the final book of the Bible, Revelation, it literally means the unveiling. In other words, the veil is being removed so that you could see. Churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, here's what you see. You see an emperor named Domitian who's oppressing and persecuting the church. John, what you see is that you've been thrown onto an island of Patmos to be exiled away from the people that you love so that you cannot uh, share the gospel. But there's a whole lot more than what you see. And the book of Revelation was uh, written in order that reality might be unveiled for us so that we might see things the way that they really are. Are. And so what we're going to do today as we look into uh, Revelation chapter 1 is we're going to see how John got this revelation, the final book of the Bible, in order that we might see how the true story of history will end and to see what the rule, of reign, uh, the rule and reign of God looks like in the face of the, in the in light of the days in which we live. Starting next week, we're going to look at Jesus' words to individual churches, real churches in Asia Minor, um, but today what we're going to see is the message that he's saying to all of those churches and the message that he's saying to us as well. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, as we see the unveiling, the beginning of the unveiling of the spiritual reality. This is Revelation 1, we're going to read verse 9 to 20. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, so on Sunday, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and in the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. 
fascinating vision, revelation, unveiling of Jesus in his glory. Here's John, and he has been told by Jesus, write a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Right? There's a, I think there's going to be a picture. Oh, there's going to be a picture of the seven churches, a map of, of Asia Minor. So here you see this is what is modern-day Turkey. And when Jesus says in verse 11, write a scroll, send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see that the first one is Ephesus. That's the island closest, that's the place, city closest to the island of Patmos. And it would go from there and it would circulate in a clockwise direction until Laodicea. Now, the interesting thing is that there are a lot of other churches in Asia Minor. These were not the only seven, but for some reason, these were the seven real churches that were given this letter from Jesus. They were probably the most influential cities, the biggest cities, the wealthiest cities, and the ones that were located along a mail route throughout Asia Minor. And so if you sent a letter to Ephesus from there, it would quickly make its rounds so that all of Asia Minor would hear about it. It's a very strategic thing. There's a letter that's being written to each of these churches that all of the churches need to hear. At the same time, the number seven is extremely significant. It's extremely significant throughout Scripture because it's seven days in a week. It was symbolic of perfection, of completion. And so when Jesus says, write these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, literally what he's saying is write to all of the churches there, but throughout time, this is a message, a timeless message for all of the churches that would be in existence since the time of the revelation of Jesus to John. In other words, what Jesus is saying is write this down, not only for the real house churches of Asia Minor then, but for every church that would be established in the time period ensuing. In still other words, the book of Revelation and this message is a message for us. And so the Lord God would give us ears to hear what his spirit would say to the church. What is he saying to churches in the face of persecution? See, John knew these churches well. In fact, he was probably the pastor over this uh, group of seven churches. It's like satellite churches or church plants or whatever it might be. John would go around and he would oversee all of them. And in the midst of the persecution, he was, they tried to kill him, but he wouldn't die. And so they exiled him to this island in order that he might be punished, but also so that it would rob him of influence over these influential churches in Asia Minor seven of them. And if you read, we'll read in the next few weeks, out of the seven, five of them had become pretty compromised in their faith. Two of them were fighting in the midst of persecution to stay loyal and faithful to Christ and the call of God, but five of them had fallen off and were compromised. And in the midst of, instead of the church going out and impacting the world, the world had come in and began impacting the church. And so what would be the message of Jesus to these seven churches in Asia Minor? What would be the message of Jesus to churches like ours today? Two things that I believe Jesus says to us through the passage that we've read. The first thing is this. Jesus says, wake up because I have not given up on my bride. The first thing Jesus says to seven churches there, five of which had fallen asleep in a sense. And what Jesus says to the church now and what Jesus says to us, says, wake up because I've not given up on my church. I don't know if you're a morning person. A any morning people, I love the morning. Okay, 
Okay, how many of us are, I'm not a morning person, I love the evening, I'm a night person completely. All right. Others of us, it depends on how much sleep we got and all that good stuff. I had, I had a professor, and he, he didn't like the mornings, but his conviction was, I need to spend time with God every morning. I need to begin the day in prayer. And so he said, the only two things that get me up in the morning are coffee and Jesus. He said, that's it. Wake up at 5 o'clock, and he would pray for you know, the needs of his life in the church and the world. Some of us are morning people, some of us are not. We've got three children, we've got three, Manny, Elijah, and Elise, and um, they, don't, uh, they don't often like me talking about them, so I'm going to keep this somewhat anonymous. But of our three children, um, one of them is not so bad at waking up. Like, so we'll go to their rooms and wake up, it's time for school, wake up, it's time for school, wake up, it's time for school, and then we'll have to make their rounds. So that's kind of like they snooze us, and then we have to go back five minutes later, wake up, wake up, wake up, and then they snooze us again, and we go, and we're like, are they awake? Olivia, are they awake? David, are they awake? I don't know, let's go check. And we're like, wake up, wake up. Oh, and one of them is awake, and they're all dressed, and the other one is, is, is getting dressed. The other one is like still knocked out, like comatose. Like they're like no movement in them. One of our children can sleep through anything. It's like you could, like Olivia is always vacuuming around the house at all hours of the day. Man, that child sleeps through a vacuum, could sleep through a bulldozer, could sleep through like anything, like crazy things be happening. Like there's a, there's a war going on outside. There's like machine guns firing, and that child is still asleep. But we still go. We still wake them up. We don't give up. We wake them up until finally, oh, my gosh, what day is it? What time is it? Wake up. Get up. You got to go to school. You're late. The rest of us are ready to go. And so finally that child wakes up, and then we get going. But we don't give up because we know that they're eventually going to wake up, and they've got work to do that day. There's, uh, it reminds me of a, uh, of a youth retreat. Like every, every youth retreat, we, every retreat we have for that matter, I think, you know, we've got to think about the scheduling because um, we stay up late, 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 late into the night, like praying and worshiping and, and talking and eating cup noodles and things like that. And then we have to wake up like at the crack of dawn in order to do small groups and quiet time. And all these blessings that we got last night are being stolen away because we're so angry and so tired. I can't believe I had to wake up. But still, we do it anyways because we've got to maximize the time. You guys paid a lot of money. Your parents paid a lot of money. And they're expecting you to come back changed. And if you're not changed yet, then you've got to get changed at this last service. So we're doing all this stuff. The last morning, it's really difficult for students to wake up. It's, it's, more difficult, it's difficult for the leaders to wake up also. But the leaders are going around, wake up, everybody, wake up. We got worship. You got worship in five minutes. We're skipping small group today because your small group leader is still in bed. But listen, we got to worship because our praise team is up and they're ready to go. So wake up, wake up, wake up. And so everybody's like groggy and they're like, oh, my gosh. And they're waking up and they're getting dressed and their hair is like going crazy. But go to one guy. And there's one guy, and he, he was at our alpha service this morning. He's been to 14 youth retreats in his life when he was a student. But as we have conversation, I've come to realize that he's never experienced what a final morning worship service was like. Every retreat he's been to, he's been too tired to wake up. And so 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, by the time it got to 12th grade, everybody in the, in the counselors, the counselors, the leaders knew that he's not going to wake up. So they're like, wake up, dude, wake up, dude, wake up, dude. They get to his, he's not going to wake up. Don't worry about him. Let's just move on to the next one. And so it is that he's never made it to any of the closing worship services, which, by the way, if you've never been either, are usually the best ones. But they stopped trying to wake him up because, in a sense, it's sad that they've given up on him. That was a long-winded way of saying, Jesus is calling us to wake up because he has not given up on us yet. 
He's not given up on his church. In the world, he's not given up on you. He's not given up on me. He's not given up on us. So here's John. He says, on the Lord's Day. Hey, he got nobody. He's not, hey, guys, let's get together as a church. He doesn't say, welcome, Church of Ephesus. He's on his own on an island of Patmos. So he, what, what am I going to do? He's like, he's having his worship time. He says, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. So he's having his own, like, worship jam with Jesus. And he's like, dear God, and all of a sudden, <laughs> he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having, like, a devotional time like that, you're like, all right, uh, let me pray before I read the book of Revelation. Lord Jesus, and then he's like, yes. <laughs> you're like, what the? He's sitting here on the Lord's day, and he's caught up in the spirit, and a voice behind him like a trumpet sounds, and it says, write this down, John. What is Jesus saying? It said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Whenever a trumpet would come in Scripture, it meant one of several things. One, it meant it's time to worship. When the trumpet, the shofar would blow, it means we're beginning our time of worship. It meant when the trumpet blows, it's time for us to go to war. It meant when the trumpet blew, it meant judgment was coming. The trumpet blows, it means the presence of God. It means those four things, but it always, always, always symbolizes a call to action. And so here he is, he's worshiping the Lord God on the Lord's day, and he hears the voice like a trumpet, and he knows he's got to act. In other words, the sounding of the trumpet was a wake-up call. And he says, John, as you awaken in the same way that you've been awakened, in the same way that you've been alarmed, I want you to bring this same message to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as you record this, it's not only for you and it's not only for them, it's for us today. That's what Jesus is saying. Can I ask you a question then? In what ways might Jesus be sounding an alarm in your life for you to awaken to what he wants you to see and to hear? What are the ways in which we've been lulled to sleep? What are the ways that we've been sleeping in the midst of the light? of the gospel. For the church in Laodicea, it was clear to them they had exchanged their spiritual wealth for spiritual poverty, exchanging it instead for material wealth. You see, Laodicea had a great banking system. They had great wealth, and the wealth of the empire, the wealth of the city, had begun to tempt and to, sm to move into the city of Laodicea. And their passion and their fire for Jesus, which once burned bright and clear, was being watered down because of a love for the things of this world. I wouldn't say that it's too much of a stretch for us to be lulled to sleep by the promise of material wealth and what this world can offer to us. In the midst of, of COVID-19, a lot of us may have been lulled to sleep when God was trying to waken us in the midst of COVID-19, when the rise of things like uh, uh, Robinhood and investment platforms have come up, some of us have been lulled to sleep because we are worshiping more at the altar of cryptocurrency than we are worshiping at the altar of Christ our King. Some of it's, it's a love of money. It really is. It's a love of material things. Like I know how tempting it is as I move into a new home to want to make this home everything that it was meant to be, but I'm reminded constantly this world is not my home. I'm not trying to build a home here. I'm not trying to build a dream house here. 
I'm trying to build a place where we can use it for the kingdom of God, but this cannot be. This cannot be my ground-bound reality. Like, this is not the be-all, end-all of my life. And I fight to not be lulled into sleep. I want you to have a lot. I want you to have riches. I want you to be rich. I want you to make a lot of money. I believe the Lord God does too so that you could do a lot for the kingdom of God. The more you have, the more you can do. But let's not get it twisted to think that if I have a lot, it automatically means I'm going to be more of a blessing to other people because it's a very fine line between making a lot of money and having the love of money, which is the root of all evil, begin to rob us of a love for Christ. Have you been lulled into a slumber because of a love for the things of this world? It was the case with Laodicea. The pleasures of this world, the things that everybody else has, we begin looking at that and what we've given up for the sake of Christ. And then we see a video like our friend shared about the way that they're living in order to bring the gospel to people who don't know. And then we're awakened to a reality. Man, what am I doing with my life? In this one life that I've been given, what am I doing? with how I live. doesn't mean we need to go to Africa. doesn't mean we need to, 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 maybe it does, but it means that we need to be thoughtful when Jesus is blaring an alarm and sounding a trumpet that we don't turn off that alarm. For the church in Ephesus, it wasn't money, it wasn't wealth. It was, man, we're doing things well on the outside. And once they had this fire within them that drove everything that they did, the heart was involved, engaged in it. When they were serving God, they did it with an absolute dependence and they prayed and they said, God, apart from you, we can do nothing. I believe in the power of the Spirit. I believe you can do this. But in time, their love began to grow cold and they were satisfied having a form of godliness denying its power. They were satisfied having an outward form when inwardly there was nothing of substance inside. The love had grown cold. And maybe for some of us, the same is true. We're serving in our youth ministry. You're serving in house church. You're getting up and doing praise, and you're doing all of the things that you once were doing, but no longer is there a love that drives us to do the things that we used to do with all of our hearts. And to a midst of a church that has fallen asleep, Jesus is calling us to awaken. Do you remember when you were so focused on the lost that you wanted to see come to know Jesus? You were waiting for the right opportunity to bring them to house church. You were waiting for the time when you could bring them to Christ. You were waiting for the time when, as you're praying for people that you could raise up as disciples, but now that, 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 that fire that once burned so bright has become just a flicker, just an ember, and somehow we've been lulled to sleep. Jesus says, it's time to awaken. I'm coming back soon. Keith Green, one of the, the prophets of, our, of, a younger, of an older day, wrote a song that I've just been kind of reflecting on and meditating, and, and Pastor Josiah shared, uh, said, hey, you know, as I think about this message that you're, uh, that you're preaching, I think of this song as well. And so we both were thinking of this song that he wrote called Asleep in the Light. It's a challenging song when he was writing songs in a time in the 70s, right after the hippie movement, the Jesus movement, and, and people were getting serious about Jesus. But then a lot of, again, the, the world began to seep in, and, and people were getting excited about Christian music, but they weren't being excited about Christ. They were excited about these bands, but they were not excited about the return of the king. And so uh, he wrote these songs to speak prophetically into the situation in which he lived. 
in this one song, Asleep in the Light, talks about how like, the church has been given so much. One of, the, one of the verses says, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know, that's all I ever hear. But no one aches, no one cries, no one even sheds one tear. While he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And we just lay back and keep soaking it in or something to that effect. He says, can't you see it's such sin that he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps. And you close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Have we fallen asleep in the light? Because to such a church, Jesus says, it's time to wake up. And the glorious thing is that he's not given up on us. Look at, look at where Jesus is in the midst of this. He's speaking to John. But it, it says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which it says in verse 20, is the church, are the churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. In other words, in the midst of those churches that had fallen asleep, in the midst of those churches, some of which were about to go apostate, in the midst of those churches, some of which, many of which had gone compromised from the love that once brought them near, Jesus says, I stand in the midst of them. In other words, my bride is broken, but I'm standing with her. My bride is ugly, <laughs> U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you're ugly. But still, I'm standing with my bride. My, my bride has gone wayward and pursued other loves. But where will you find Jesus? He says, I'm right there with my bride. He doesn't give up on his church. Listen, he hasn't given up on the church in America. Maybe you have, but Jesus hasn't. Maybe you start talking about, ah, oh, you know what, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Jesus hasn't given up on his church yet, neither should we. Are you the kind of person that likes to talk badly about the churches out there? Or are you the kind of person who's going to say, you know what, I know that that's the reality. Jesus knows that that's the reality. But listen, I'm not going to talk bad about the bride of my love. I'm going to serve it, and I'm going to love it, and I'm going to feed it in order that it might be the bride that shines and is ready for the coming of her bridegroom. Let's not be part of the problem. We know that it's there. Jesus knows that it's there. He gave his life for a bride that was broken. But he said, let's labor, let's work, let's wake up. Knowing the reality, let's work, because one day the church is going to be made perfect. I haven't given up on it. That's what Jesus says. Neither should you. That's the first thing that we see. Wake up, church, because I haven't given up on you. Second thing that we see, okay, second thing that we see is a call for us. Don't give up on your calling as a church. Okay, don't give up on your calling as a church. What is that calling? Well, we see in general what it is here. At the end, it says... I turned to see the voice. It was seven golden lampstands. What is a lamp? A lampstand is what it sounds like. It's a stand where you would put a lamp that holds a light. 
you might have seen it in the pictures when our brother was talking about their electricity and sometimes they would go in and out. There was a lampstand with lights. The lampstand is literally a stand where the light would go. The stand is not the light. In other words, what is the calling of the church? It's for us to be the ones who hold the light of Christ, the light of the world, and hold it in the midst of the darkness. Jesus says, this is your calling. Don't give up on that calling. A lot of us, we may have given up on that calling because there are a lot of other things that we're doing. For the sake of this or that or this thing or that thing or this activity or that activity, we've watered down that sense of calling. Jesus says, don't forget. Okay, don't forget. Don't forget your calling to be a light in the midst of the darkness. A few weeks ago, right after, um, right after the, the killings of Asian Americans, Korean Americans, and others in Atlanta, Georgia, the, the next week there was, a, uh, there was a vigil that a few of us from Harvest went to. Uh, we went to that vigil um, hosted by Asian Americans for those who were grieving um, the anti-Asian American acts of racism that have been perpetrated for all these years, and I was a, kind of came to a head in, in Atlanta. So we were there, and, and I remember like, gosh, the, the whole time it was there, it was a, not a Christian gathering, just organized by uh, different groups of, of Asian American um, groups in Central Florida. There were some speeches, there was, some, there was a song that was sung by somebody, um, nobody that I knew, knew knew the song, but they were singing about something or the other, and then there were um, different people came up and gave speeches, and then they opened the mic, uh, so people could come up and share. And uh, I would, I don't know, maybe like 15 or 20 people came up and shared, and they were able to share their fears, their frustrations, their anger, their incidents of racism, their futility of it all, wh whatever it is that they shared. And, um, and, and after a while, you know, it's like, how much more can you add to that particular conversation? I mean, after like three or four or five people, the message was the same. But I remember I was sitting there, and it had been going on for like three hours, and I didn't intend, I didn't think it was going to be three hours. I was going to, you know, be there for like a couple hours maybe at the most and leave. But it was going on um, and on. And I remember having, like the entire time, having this like, what's this like uneasy feeling? And, and I was trying to pinpoint it. And so I'm like talking to our folks who were there and, and trying to figure out what's going on and, they had a time where each of us got these like tea lights, uh, electric tea lights you turn on and then you put it, uh, there was some water there and you put it on the water and, and as it got dark, it's supposed to like light up the darkness and, and all this stuff. And, and after it was done, we were, there were some the organizers were taking pictures and um, w one of the organizers with whom I've had a, a social media relationship with, I was talking with them and uh, said thank you, you know, for, for putting this on and um, it was really interesting because the, the, the response that I got was not what I was expecting. This person uh, was very angry, and they said, no more talk now. <laughs> no more talk. Time for action. No more talk. Like, we, we just talk, talk, talk. Now time for action. And in a sense, like, what they were saying was almost a synopsis of the whole time. It was like, there's a bunch of talk, talk, talk. And, and maybe that was what was bothering me. Because if this was a gathering at church, we would talk, 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 which we did at a couple of our prayer meetings, but then we also had a time 
to, to pray and, and, and not just lament and, and, and let it sit there, but we were able to bring these things to God and to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because we believe that that's the only way that true and lasting change is going to happen. And it's not just in areas of racism, but in every situation of brokenness in this world. And that's the call to be the light in the darkness is to see what's broken and to make it right, is to, is to right all that which is wrong, to take that which is crooked and to make it straight. And, and that's our calling. And I think that's Probably one of the things that, that really was not sitting well with me was because as I saw those lights around the water, a lot of the lights which had probably bad batteries and so the lights had gone out and weren't working, I looked and I was like, well, it's, it's slightly an anticlimactic image there of darkness and then like lights that are trying to shine but they're not really doing much. And, and I felt like, man, that was a parable and a picture to me that this is life apart from the light of Christ. And I, I want to be careful not to, not, to, not to indict or bash that particular gathering because here's, here's where it gets to me as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a church person. What got to me, and I think this is what bothered me the most, was that as much as I felt like it was insufficient what we were doing in that field that day, I realized that it was more than what I was doing as one who has the true light of Christ in me. And I think that's what was so bothersome to me. That we have a light that can light up the darkness. But I confess that in some ways, I forget and I neglect that call for our church to boldly shine in the midst of the darkness. And what Jesus is saying to the church is, hey, let's wake up. Let's wake up. And let's not forget our calling. You see, a lot of people are going to tell you what the calling of the church ought to be. They're going to say, oh, you know what? You, you, there's, there's too much of this in the church, or there's not enough of this in the church, or you're doing this too much, or you're doing that too much, or it should be focused on this, or no, 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 it should be focused on this, and you should do this, and you should do this. Not every call you understand needs to be answered, right? You get a phone call, it says unknown, or it says potential spam, or it says this number with like 30 letters, 30 numbers going across, and you're like, I don't believe I know anybody's got 30 numbers in their phone number. You don't answer that call. Not every call needs to be answered. But if you know who's calling and you know that, wow, their voice is important, then you've got to answer that call. Who's the one who's calling the church? Because perhaps in order for us to be awakened to what God is calling us to, we need to be awakened to the voice of one and to see who it is who's calling us. And that's what John gives to us in the Revelation, and I don't have time to go into it. This is, each one of these could be an entire section and segment in itself. But he says, son of man, it says, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash across his chest. Immediately, the picture that John is getting and that he's describing to the churches in Asia Minor, and they get it, they understand that if you've got a, if you've got a robe on, you're most likely a priest. Say, this is a high priest. But the longer the robe, the greater the authority. 
And so the high priest would have the greatest authority. But you remember when, when Isaiah has a vision of God in his glory in Isaiah 6, and he says, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a, I'm, I, I, I live amongst an unclean people. Woe is me. Do you, remember what, do you remember what Isaiah saw? He saw God in his glory, and it said the train of his robe filled the temple. If the length of your robe is an indication of your authority, then the one that Isaiah saw, the one that John saw, is one in whom infinite authority and worth is vested. He's saying, that's who I saw, and immediately I knew that this was a voice that I need to heed, and a voice that I need to hear, and a voice that I need to listen to. Sometimes we just become too comfortable with Jesus. We become too casual with him, too comfortable with him, too chummy with him, that Jesus is my homeboy attitude when John, who, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, that was the, I mean, can you imagine that? Like, if I'm writing a, hey, uh, I'm, I'm doing this retreat, and they say, can you send me a bio? Would I dare say, I'm the one that Jesus loved? That's my, the, the pastor, the child that Jesus, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, like more than anyone else. If there was anyone who was intimate with Jesus, it would be John. And yet he sees him in this glory, and he's like, oh my gosh, and he fell like a dead man. It says his head was, and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Back then, just like now, white hair is symbolic of age and wisdom. This is, and when it says it's white as snow, it's symbolic of infinite age and wisdom, the ancient of days. But unlike in humanity, mere humanity, the passing of time and the accumulation of years do not lead to a decay of mental and physical capabilities. Jesus is shining in all of his radiant glory, sharper and stronger than ever before. And it says, as he continues, his eyes are like blazing fire. <laughs> it means he sees everything. His eyes pierce through the veneer and pierce through our hearts to see the deepest parts of who we are. When nobody else sees the secret sins, the secret thoughts, it says Jesus piercing through, sees all of those things in our hearts, the things that we dare not anybody know about us. It says Jesus blazing eyes sees all that. His feet are like bronze. Not only does he see, but bronze feet always symbolic of judgment. That the bronze feet of a king, because he stands over his subjects, symbolic of the judgment that he brings in his right hand, the seven stars out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword to pierce our hearts, and his face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. You ever look up at the sun in all of its brilliance? Probably not, or else you'd be blind. He's saying, that's Jesus, that if I were to see, if I were to look at him, my eyes would be seared out of their sockets. In seeing this majesty, I felt like I was dead. Throughout Scripture, that's the unified testimony. People like Paul. Paul was blinded by the appearance of Jesus. It was John, falls like a dead man. Isaiah, woe is me, Ezekiel, same thing. It's, it, it's Peter and, and James and John in the boat when Jesus leads them to this catch of fish, and they're like, get away from me. 
Get away from me. I cannot be in your presence. The response of the people of God when they see Jesus. Have we seen him in his glory like this recently? Do we long to see Jesus in his glory in this way? John falls like he's dead, and he's like, my goodness, I'm 90 years old. I'm not going to get up from this one. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the living one. Listen, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Why did Jesus need to show up to John like this? Like, John, dude, that's your boy. You love him. Literally, when he says, the one whom Jesus loves, it's saying, the one who loved me and who keeps on loving me. He's not saying, I'm more loved than anybody else. This is a testimony of the fact that I cannot believe that he would still love me all these years, even after all that I've done. But Jesus touches him. Like, Jesus touches people that he doesn't need to be touching. Like, blind people, he touches their eyes when he could just say, see, (laughs) but he touches their eyes. To people who are deaf, instead of just saying, listen, hear, he touches their ears. To lepers who had not known human touch since the time they were diagnosed with leprosy, Jesus doesn't just say, be clean. He touches them because there's power, because there's peace, because there's a presence when you just Put your hand on, this is what what we've missed so much, isn't it, during the midst of this pandemic, is that that touch, the hug, the handshake, the love, the pat on the back. Jesus touches him to show his peace, his presence, his power. Why did John need to see that? Why do you need to see that he holds the keys of death? What does that mean? I hold the keys of death. That means, look, here's, here's death, right? Here's death. Here's a door. I hold the key, and I open the door. If someone goes to death, they go through my sovereign hand. What is he saying? St. John, these churches in Asia Minor that are suffering persecution, whose lives are in danger, they need to know that Emperor Domitian does not hold the keys of death. Their lives are not in his hands. They're in mine. That's what Jesus is saying. I open the door and I close the door. Listen, if I want you on this earth, then that boiling oil that was meant to kill you, persecution, no persecution will take you away, John. If I want you here, cancer is not going to take you away. If I want you here, no stray bullet is going to take you away. If I want you here, nothing's going to take you home. And if I've opened the door to death and I want you in my presence, then nothing, no doctor, no protection, no amount of shelter, no amount of bodyguards are going to keep you here if I want you home. I'm the one who holds the keys of life and death nobody else. He says, you need to see that, you need to know that, and you need to communicate that to the churches who think that their lives are hanging by a thread, and that thread is the whims and the wishes of a bloodthirsty emperor. He says, don't get it twisted. Show them my glory. We need to see that, because a call is only as important as the one who's making that call, and this is Jesus. And he says, I'm calling you, and I'm calling you. He says, will you rise into the mission of God? Because he has not given up on his bride. And he wants you to know that he's not given up on you, he's not given up on us, he's not given up on the church. There's something that Jesus sees. We look at the church, but Jesus says, let's unveil. 
as we are going through a session of premarital counseling, uh, six couples, one just got married, the other five are about to get married, and there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of sparkling in their eyes. Monica looks at Titus. Titus looks at Monica. They laugh and they giggle, and sometimes they cannot stop. These different couples. You see people who are in that stage, and they smile at each other. You know why. But what about when a couple has been married for 20 years and they still smile at each other? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and they still smile at each other. You begin to wonder why. What do they see? What are they thinking? Jesus looks at his bride, messed up and ugly, forgetful, having forgotten the voice, the beauty, the majesty of the one who calls her his own. Jesus looks at his bride. He still smiles at us. I'm committed to you forever. Here's how committed I am. I will pay the ultimate price and I will lay down my life in order that you will know that I will never give you up and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never not be faithful to you even though you're unfaithful. I'll stay with you and I will never stop smiling at the bride of my dreams. This is who we are. He stands with us. He loves us. He calls us. He awakens us. And he says, come on. Come on, church. My bride, I'm coming back soon. Until then, we got work to do. Let's get to work. Let's awaken. Let's not forget our calling. Let's live for the mission of God. Let's pray together. Let's pray for a minute. How have, how have you fallen asleep in the light of the blazing glory of Jesus, the Son of God. It's hard to fall asleep with the lights on, right? But sometimes we do, and maybe we are right now. Let's take a moment to say, Jesus, I want to see you in your glory again, and at least as much glory as I can handle. Lord, would you bring me back to you? He says, harvest, remember your calling. House church shepherd, remember your calling. House churches, remember your calling. Youth ministry, remember your calling. Don't forget, people of God, don't forget why you're here. The same voice that spoke to John, John heard it 60 years before, saying, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And check it, here's a promise. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Let's stand on that glorious promise. Let's reach out to Jesus' hands. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a bride ready for you. Every heart longing for our King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, awaken us that we might live in the mission of God, beginning now in our circles of influence, in our sphere of influence, as much as it belongs to me. Lord, may I lead my groups, my ministry, my whatever, to hold out the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness. Let's pray together for a minute. Can we do that? Pray for a minute, and then I'll pray for us, and then we're going to respond with a song of longing, the church's longing for the coming of our King. Let's pray for a minute. And then we'll continue.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are so good, so good to us. Spirit, thank you for the word that you bring to your church through the years, through the ages, through the centuries. And Jesus, thank you for being the bridegroom that every person longs to have. So faithful, so majestic, so beautiful, so caring, so never failing in your promises. Thank you for awakening us to our call and our mission again. We confess that it's, we confess that we've been lulled to sleep in many ways, to lose sight of what matters the most, to give ourselves to hundreds of other things that are somewhat important or not important while losing sight of the things that really matter. Lord, have mercy on us. Cleanse us by the blood of our Lord Jesus, whose blood was shed in order that we might be forgiven. Lord, awaken us anew that we might live out your calling afresh for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.